I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. You know that John Chambers has been a CEO. After all, he spent more than 25 years at Cisco, helping grow the company from $70 million when he joined in 1991 to $1.2 billion when he became CEO in 1995 to $47 billion when he stepped down as CEO in 2015. What you may not know is Chambers is also, perhaps foremost, a teacher. In fact, that's a big part of what he does now as founder and CEO of JC2 Ventures, which describes itself as, quote, mentors of digital innovation who coach each company on their journey using our experiences to help them see around corners, accelerate markets, and create entirely new ones. Teaching is also a big part of what he's put into his new book, Connecting the Dots, Lessons for Leadership in a Startup World. Now, don't get the impression that Chambers thinks he knows it all. He makes clear in the book and in our conversation, he's always learning, always asking questions, always trying to discover what's next. That spirit and energy come across in reading his words, a playbook of his unique strategies for winning in a digital world, and they came across when I talked with him. I'd never met Chambers before. I really enjoyed the conversation. I learned a lot, and I think you will too. Before my conversation with John, though, I have an ask from me to you. I hope you like these Working Capital Conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. That's it. Here's my conversation with John Chambers. John, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Chris, it's fun to be with you today, and we'll have a healthy give and take. I look forward to it. And so to, to begin, I just want to make sure I've got my, my facts right. Um, you're just a small businessman from California, is that right? And you currently run a company of uh, two to three total employees, and, and you know, based off of that experience, uh, you've gone and, and written written a book on connecting the dots. But is that the, is that the right characterization of you, just a, just a small it, businessman it from California? I'm a West Virginian located in uh, California running an organization of three people. <laughs> Understood. And I, I, I noticed the, the distinction there. Yeah, I didn't mean to, uh, to state you live in California now. Understood. But you are, uh, That's West it. Virginian and, and, and boy, that, that com- comes across. I guess, uh, um, you, you're, you're proof, huh? You, you can take the boy out of West Virginia, but you can't take the what, take the West Virginia out of the boy, can you? Well, there's a loyalty there that I think many people don't grasp across the, the country. And, the West Virginia people are unbelievably good people, watch out for their own. A lot of my values came out of West Virginia, and it's where I first saw the transitions that can happen if a state or a company or a region doesn't change. If you don't disrupt and reinvent yourself, you get left behind, and that's what happened to our state. We were the coal center of the world and the uh, chemical center of the world, and, and we lost our leadership, and, and things are a little bit tougher now. Uh, I hope they'll come back in a startup community. But I saw the same thing happen in Boston 128, where we were the Silicon Valley of the world. We couldn't even spell Silicon Valley. These guys out in the West Coast and women out in the West Coast, uh, they didn't get it. We didn't think they did. And yet, you know, you fast forward 30 years and a thousand high tech companies disappeared. My company, Wang, went from 32,000 people to zero. So I'm a product of uh, watching changes occur. Sometimes I've had a front row seat and sometimes I'm in the middle of the playing field. Uh, I've seen every movie there is to see. I've probably made a number of things right. And candidly, I've made some mistakes that I learned from. 
So those market shifts, I mean, among the themes that you talk about, market shifts uh, are one of them that I really want to get to discuss with you. Um, curiosity is another. Um, disruption is another. But you, you just talked about a number of the market shifts, um, and you write about it. You write about what happens with what happened with um, Kaiser uh, and and other companies. And you mentioned at the chemical company in uh, um, in West Virginia. You mentioned what happened yeah. in in uh, Route One Twenty Eight, um, and you, you write about in very personal terms. Um, you know, the, the, the decisions that you were faced with at Wang and the way in which you, you pushed your CEO, but, but one of the lessons that you learned from him, from that experience was maybe you kind of wish that you had pushed a little bit more. But talk to me about these market shifts. They're so easy to see in the rear view mirror. Is it possible to see them in advance? Is, is, there, is there a sense that one gets? How does one know? How can one start to think about market shifts as they're happening or on the cusp before they happen so that you don't end up looking at them, uh, you know, with twenty twenty hindsight? Yeah, it's a classic example. If you're looking out your rearview mirror going real fast on a curvy road in West Virginia, you're off the road. <laughs> uh, I think it starts with a philosophy, Chris. I think you've got to say, do you compete against competitors? And if you do, you're looking at your rearview mirror because you're seeing where they were in the past to get to where they are today. Or do you compete against market transitions? Those can be changing business models. They can be changing citizen expectations, uh, often enabled by technology. So when I see a market transition, business model change, enabled by technology such as artificial intelligence or digitization or the internet, that's when I move. And so I remind my teams, originally the Cisco team and before that Wang and a smaller segment at IBM, but now for the 16 startups that I'm coaching and heavily involved with and the other literally hundreds I talk for every month, uh, I get them to try to focus on the market transition and use competitors as a way of keeping score. Much like mm -hmm. many coaches teach their team, we, we build a playbook and then we adjust the playbook slightly uh, to which team we're playing based upon the team strengths and limitations. But, but in terms of sensing the oncoming market shifts, you know, among this, the, the, I call it a skill. I don't know. Is asking questions a skill? Because you talk about it a lot, and I was just going to characterize it as a skill. But do you, do you view it that way? Yes. I think it's a skill that all of us can develop, and I'd argue that all of your listeners to podcasts need to think about how do they listen for the market transitions, either in their business life or their personal life. Uh, my experience, it isn't just asking questions. It's, it's being able to listen, often from people that you may not think will give you an indication uh, of something. And uh, I knew that France was going to become the startup nation of Europe once I listened to a bunch of French startups in uh, the Las Vegas Consumer Electronics Show and then went over and talked to French business leaders, and then I made a prediction, which almost even my, my best friends thought I was going to miss badly on when I said France will become a good place to do business mm. and the leader of innovation and startups for Europe, and yet three and a half years later they did because all of us viewed France as a terrible place to do business, great people, great place to go to take your spouse or dinner, but the last place you'd invest resources. So listening careful. And you know, listening is a skill, and so often we associate communications with how well you verbalize something. I would argue listening is equally as important. Most of the time I heard that from the customers, but I had to be willing 
to ask questions, then listen carefully and follow up questions just like you do during your podcast. Yeah, the asking questions of customers that, that you do um, comes across, and that's really where I was going. Um, I, I just got to do one fact-checked here because I, I think you're being sure. modest. Uh, among the things that you noticed about France was not only that it was going to become a great place to do business, but um, didn't you have a prediction about who was going to become the next president of France? <laughs> I did, and it, it wasn't so much a prediction. It was just experience. I The first time... I, I met uh, Emmanuel Macron. He was the French economic minister at that time. And I knew the President Hollande and Prime Minister Valls well and La Durant, the defense minister. But as I, the first time I met Macron, I called my wife up and said, I've met a future president of France. And a year or two years later, uh, not even my business peers in France thought that that he would become president or once he declared that he was going to win. And there was no doubt in my line, mind because he was running from the middle as the outsider, and uh, the outsiders had won most all elections in Europe and in the U.S. at that point in time. But I learned that, back to your listening skills, uh, when uh, uh, the candidate was Governor Dukakis out of Massachusetts and President uh, Bush ended up winning it, and uh, uh, I was with the prior Secretary of State of Massachusetts and a African-American doorman uh, at a hotel, my friend asked uh, ask him who he's going to vote for, assuming that it would be Dukakis, and uh, uh, assuming that, that he would lean that way. And he said, I've voted Democratic all my life, but I don't trust this guy. I'm going to vote for the, for the other guy. And then Paul went out and he asked that same question over the next two days of traveling from typical Democratic constituents. And at that time, Dukakis was up 15 points in the polls. And, of course, Bush won in hindsight. Uh, in terms of the election, people asked me on, uh, on national TV in May of 2016 in the U.S. who I thought was going to win. But I've just come through the middle part of the nation, the South, and and I've uh, been talking with people about who they were thinking, and including a limousine driver who traditionally voted Democratic. And he said, I'm going to vote for this Trump guy. And so I got pinned. I said, not who am I going to vote for, but who are you asking me is going to win based on momentum and that was May of 2016. I said I thought uh, Trump would win the presidency. So you can connect the dots if you listen, you watch for patterns. And what I do is pattern recognition. Then I, I say, now that you've got your pattern recognition, what are you going to do about it to be able to lead through these transitions and benefit your company or benefit your country in terms of job creation, depending on your primary goal? Now, is pattern recognition a teachable skill, or are we just either born with it or not? I think all the skills are teachable. You know, when we think about it, I, Chris, you know, when I, I look at my leaders and I evaluate them, I evaluate them on results. I evaluate them uh, very much on how well they know the industry, how well they build teams, uh, their communication skills, their culture, their ability to go across engineering and sales and finance, et cetera. None of us get good grades in all of those, but everybody can improve. And you can take a weakness, including my weakness was public speaking and being dyslexic, and I used to throw up before I would literally present, mm. and you can make it a strength if you're willing to work on it hard enough. And, and sometimes that emotional connectivity, because I was dyslexic and people laughed about me, I never laugh at anybody. I've never raised my voice in my entire business career. doesn't mean I don't have high expectations of my team, but you you learn skills and then you can play them stronger. That's what I hope I've done in this book is that, People who read it are able to say, 
here's a lesson I can learn and I can adjust to my style. It was when I saw the regular questions, didn't matter if I was in Dubai, New Delhi, uh, West Virginia, uh, New York, Silicon Valley, the questions were remarkably similar from startups and big companies alike in terms of the commonality, and that's what I attempted to address in this book, and your, your listeners or readers can make their own decision whether I did that or not. Well, and that's exactly why I started by asking you, you know, just making sure, you know, clear you're just a, you know, small businessman with a small company of two to three total employees, obviously, you know, tongue in cheek. What it takes, among the things that I took from your book is what it takes to be a leader is what it takes to be a leader. And that doesn't matter if the company is two to three employees or if it's 70,000 Cisco employees located in every corner of the world. Um, you know the the lessons and the and the playbook is a, is is relevant no matter where you no matter where you sit on that scale is it is that right? Completely agree. Now, skill is important, and and the way you communicate with seventy thousand people and how you get it through your layers is different than how you communicate if you got ten people in your organization or your reporting group. But the basic, you're responsible for the vision and strategy of your area of responsibility. Uh, developing, leading, changing the leadership team to implement that vision and strategy, uh, the culture that you want your team to have, and then communicate all the above. And that communication is becoming more and more important uh, at a faster pace in the age of social media, et cetera. But the core skills are similar uh, and can normally be adopted to the techniques as you grow, especially if you get people around you can help advise uh, how you evolve your leadership style as you go from a company of 10 people to 100 to perhaps 500 to perhaps 15,000. To perhaps 70,000. I want to ask you, you you know, you can get there. Although um, there's a line you write at the end of the book that um, you don't see, am I interpreting this line right, that you don't see um, scaling in terms of size of company like that, maybe not. Maybe let's not get stuck on the number. 70,000 might not be the number, 150,000. But you see companies reaching billion dollar, I think you meant valuation. I don't know if you meant valuations or, or revenue or how you were measuring billion dollar, but, but that could be done with two to three employees. That doesn't require 70,000 employees as you see it today or in the near future. Is that right? Well, I think you're going to see, yes, in concept. I think you're going to see the evolution a different way. I think uh, if you fast forward 10 years, it might be as much as 80 million of American workers don't work for a company or a government. They're uh, either contract or temporary uh, or, uh, if you will, uh, advisors uh, on it. And I think companies are going to be built off of the core skill sets and then use others to complement those skill sets. So it's very possible you're going to see not just a company of 10 people have a billion-dollar market evaluation or sell for uh, a billion dollars, uh, but perhaps even a billion dollars in revenue. And I'm going to set some pretty ambitious goals for JC2 and, and see if we can't prove out to be a model that way. But it's the old core versus context discussion. What is your core capability? And then surround yourself with peers, usually not part of your company, but informally tied to your company in a way that allows you to move with speed on that and I think that model is going to change dramatically, and I try to teach those opportunities to the startups that I coach. Can I ask you about a line? And remember, you- the startups I coach are also uh, companies that have fifty or hundred million dollar. I'm sorry, fifty billion or hundred billion revenues, because I do coach several of the CEOs in the Fortune uh, 200 
uh, as well. Yeah. You, you, in, in other words, you're not discriminating, John. I mean, you're not going to not talk to someone just because, you know, she's CEO of a $50 billion company. You're, you wouldn't discriminate in that way, right? Well, you learn from everybody. And the fact that anybody, <laughs> whether it's a startup, asks me for advice or a big company does. And, and I love to teach. I and uh, my, my role, as I say in the book, this next time is to get this startup mentality into existing businesses because 40% of them are going to go out of business in this next decade. Mm. And I'm talking about the big companies and uh, 70% of the startups won't make it. And so how do you really create the, the go-to concepts that give you a higher probability of success? And if you're in a big company, how do you act like a startup? Because I think you have to. If you don't, you're going to get disrupted. And if you're a small company, how do you disrupt and how do you learn to scale that disruption for the questions you asked me earlier? So that's and and that's one of the, that's what I want to ask you now um, is about a line you write earlier in, early in the book that really stuck with me. Um, the, you, you wrote the biggest mistake we all make is that we get comfortable and we get disrupted because we don't disrupt ourselves. What do you mean, and why is that so hard? Well, it's so hard because all of us were trained to do the right thing just three to five percent better. Doesn't matter if you're in business school or government or whatever role we're in, in the media, et cetera. And it's just that linear improvement is the way we were brought up. The problem is this is no longer a linear world. It's exponential. The speed of change and disruption is so fast. You know, the example I love to use, I was on the Walmart board. We saw Amazon coming you know, 25 years ago, but it, it took them 21 years to pass this in market capitalization, the value of their company on Wall Street. Uh, GM, I'm sure, saw Tesla coming, but it, it took Tesla only 14 years to move past them. And uh, Tesla, I'm sure, saw Uber coming in terms of how cars will be purchased and shared. It only took them seven years. And so you see this thing accelerating in terms of how fast changes occur. So back to your, to your question, many of the skills that you use as a leader are applicable, whether it's 10 people that you lead or you're in 100,000. And many of the concepts are very applicable uh, just depending on skills. But the one thing that has changed is the importance of communications. You can't be a good leader today without very strong communications. You could 30 years ago. And Jack Welch be the first one to say communications were not his strength. But, boy, his vision and strategy, his building a leadership team, and the culture he built was the best in the world for two decades. Uh, however, today communications is a key element. And then the speed of change is we used to kid about the Internet being three times faster than traditional business. Uh, digitization and AI is going to be three times faster, maybe five uh, than the internet pace. So speed and communications had to evolve uh, for this next decade of leadership. Two other ideas that you talk about, um, and these relate, I think, to, to vision. I think they relate to vision. They, they actually maybe work into a number of different areas. They might even work into execution. Um, but but you, you write about curiosity and you write about imagination. And I, I spoke recently with Beth Comstock, speaking of GE, former vice chair of GE, and in you yeah. know you know creator of a you know really a bringer of imagination and and uh you know an eco imagination was uh eco imagination was one of the uh ventures of hers um at, at GE and you know she wrote and you a similar concept and I'm just curious as to why that imagination can be hard for people um why is that I think we have it when we're young and I think actually our schools and our peers kind of take us out of that role. 
Mm. You're fearless when you're young. There's nothing too exciting or too daring for you. You push the envelope. You learn constantly. You get knocked down. You get back up. You fall out of trees. You climb again. And yet as we get older, we get more cautious. And I think that's actually reinforcing the education system. And I think most of us here in America would view that our K-12 through education system is broken, in part because it's teaching people like we were taught 30, 40, 50 years ago. I think we've got to teach people about entrepreneurship, regardless of what line of work you go into. And I think we've got to dream bigger dreams. Our country, once we decide to put somebody on the moon, we can do it. But today we're behind and we're not even in the top 10 innovation countries in the world, according to the Bloomberg Index. And uh, uh, our startups are barely on terms of initial public offering going to cross the 200 unit level this year in an amazing strong economy. Uh, and yet during the 90s, we were averaging four to 500 a year and hit a peak of almost 700 uh, startups per year. And remember, that's where your job creation occurs. Most job creation for companies is after they go public. So I think we've got to realize there's no entitlement. I think we've got to do a better job of dreaming, using your words, imagination. And many people might criticize me at Cisco for uh, dreaming too big and, and taking on too many things and taking risks and selling at some. And I did 180 acquisitions, and I think everybody would agree that we probably had the best acquisition concept and model in the industry by far. Uh, and yet I wish I'd taken more risk and, and, and stretched myself and imagined even more and dreamed bigger uh, on it. And I intend to do that with the star. But I think it's something that can be reinforced. Uh, and, and I think Americans by our nature are natural dreamers uh, and with great imagination and innovation. But we're getting rusty and we're reinforcing the, the wrong behaviors. And I want to ask you about that. I want to ask you, because you do touch on current events and, and politics and the state of our nation, and that's clearly something that's on your mind. And, and I would even venture to say that maybe, you know, maybe one of the motivations behind this book, I mean, this book is clearly a book about teaching. It's clearly written by somebody who, who enjoys and, and, and wants to teach and is uh, you know, wor worried ab about that. And it's not surprising me that you have points of view on, on education as well. Um, so I, I want to ask you about that, but you, very quickly, just to kind of finish up on the, the business side, you, you just mentioned okay. uh, again, um, JC2 Ventures. What, how would you characterize for the philosophy of it? I, I would imagine that people listening to this would be thinking, okay, John Chambers, guy who recognizes market shifts, guy who connects dots, guy who made all those acquisitions uh, that you just talked about at Cisco. Um, and now he's in the venture space coaching and I don't know if incubating is necessarily the right word, but helping along companies, startups, et cetera. Um, what can you describe off of that in terms of a philosophy, a business philosophy? What do you look for in terms of startups? Does it matter to you? Sector? Are you focused on people? I just imagine that people are going to want to know how you think about these things. So uh, why don't you tell me? Well, first of all, uh, my primary goal is, is not to make money as a, a, quote, a traditional venture capitalist. Uh, my primary goal is to get this country's startup engine going again and to also play a role in doing that in France and India because it's the largest country in the world population-wise, i.e. 1.3 billion people in India, 
and one of the countries like France that invented the word entrepreneur and then got further away from it can become the innovation engine for Europe uh, and play a small role in that. That's pretty exciting. And if we can take our startups and mentality and bring it across all 50 states, not just California and New York, but across all 50 states where we can do job creation and get back to the American dream that our children will have a better standard of living than their parents and their, their children will have better standard of living than they do, which many people in America now no longer believe, I mean, to help make that happen is exciting. So I'm, we're more of a spatial purpose focus, job creation, inclusion, by both geography and gender base, and we key off of uh, market transitions that are technology and business. I'm curious, I'm curious how you think about the divide that so many of us see in this country, particularly somebody who, you know, you, you come from West Virginia, um, spiritually, certainly, maybe physically you've left there, spiritually you haven't, you, you have a, a huge um, affection for the place, clearly, it, it, it just, it, it stands out. And, and the, the people in particular, and, you know, the people, and but also, you know, as well, your descriptions of the natural beauty there and the resources and what it was like to grow up there and Ravens, Ravenswood, and it, it's just, it, it all it all comes across. We live in a time of terror, of, of, of just extreme divide, so that, number one. Number two, then I, I was thinking about how you write that from a business point of view, and you talked about it a little bit in terms of the predictions of of, of Dukakis losing and your 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 view of of thinking that Trump was going to win the importance of having conversations with people outside of your natural network I, I think I'm kind of getting your language close to right I might not have it exactly right but I, I think that was the intent of what you were saying that yeah. doesn't that's exactly what doesn't happen in our society today we we are we well, it seems it, and so what, what how do you how do you view that? Because the the problem that we see seems to go directly against the guidance and the teaching and the advice that you give. Well, one of the reasons that that I've been reasonably successful in building relationships with government leaders around the world, almost regardless of the form of government, is that I focus on what's the win-win. How do the leaders win? How do their citizens win, etc.? And I get along with Democrats and Republicans very well. Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy, I just talked to a couple weeks ago. Nancy Pelosi, I have a huge amount of respect for. Uh, Senator McCain was a great friend of mine for over 25 years. I was one of his five national co-chairs when he ran. Uh, for that, President Clinton, I learned an awful lot from. And in the White House, nervous as could be, and the uh, press corps, I had the honor of announcing the Internet air with President Clinton on one side and Vice President Gore on the other. And here was the young CEO scared to death being the representative of business on how this would transform our nation and see how it occurs. And I think we need to bring the nation back together again. I think this country likes to be led from the middle, not from the extremes. And I think if we're going to achieve our destiny of becoming the top innovation company, country again, increasing our standard of living again, we've got to realize there is no entitlement and we can't do it fighting each other. Uh, we've got to come together around some basic concepts and directions. And I think who can argue with a, uh, a philosophy about more startups, more small businesses getting bigger, increasing the income of all Americans as you go forward, which we did during the 90s with the Internet. 22.5 million jobs created in eight years. Uh, last time America got a sustained pay raise was 
24% growth in the average family household income and 34% GDP growth. So this is doable type of numbers, but I believe it's got to be one of inclusion, and I try to do that. I think actually both gender and geographic inclusion and minority inclusion is so important to our country's future, and I think we'll eventually get this right. I'm an optimist. I think it'll probably get rougher before it gets better, but once the American people truly decide with the right leadership, let's put a person on the moon, nobody does it better or faster than we do, and and I hope that those days are closer rather than further out. You know, not everyone in politics today has been a politician their whole life, John. I mean, there's there's room for business people in in that field. You, you know, I'm just I'm just putting that out there. You were aware of that, right? I, I am. I get asked that question all the time for almost 20 years. I I like to to move fast. I like Democrats and Republicans. I uh, really care about. Uh, innovation and inclusion uh, on all fronts, and uh, uh, that's not necessarily a recipe for a good political leader. <laughs> okay. That's a, that's a great non-denial. You're good at that. You do know the whole media messaging thing. I, no wonder you wrote a, a whole chapter on it. Uh, we, we, well, it is, but you know what's fun, Chris? In my current role, I no longer have to be politically correct mm. uh, in the sense of watching out because I have a company and shareholders and sales everywhere in the world. And so I'm pretty open about my views now. I still do it with, I hope, good professionalism and part of the Southern charm that my family helped drive into me. But I will be very candid about my views about trade uh, deficits that cannot continue versus China. Uh, you know, I know China better than anybody else for 35 years. Uh, I've been in China, did a joint venture in China, the first one ever, part of Wang Laboratories, uh, et cetera. But the deficit is growing so fast at 40% growth per year over the last several decades and gone from you know, what was less than $100 million to almost four hundred. I'm sorry, what was $100 billion just 15 years ago, and now it's like $300 billion. You have to fix that. And so I think we've got to learn how do we deal with issues and find a way to make them work, and then how do you realize things change? You know, India, in my opinion, should be the most strategic relationship America has in the world mm. uh, for every reason, from the largest democracy and the first democracy to shared common goals in terms of citizens and economic benefit. So I like being unshackled, if you were, with one of the words you used earlier when we were talking prior to the podcast started, and I try to be more transparent on it. One of the reasons I'm pretty good with the media is I do say what I believe of. And if I want to dodge a question, I can dodge it, but I can be more candid now than before. Uh, un understood. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a time of transparency, no, no doubt. Um, to to close out, John, um, you are a person. You make clear you, you're a person who looks at what's next. Um, not only in yeah. terms of the the market shifts, but you you tell the story that I guess you didn't attend any of your graduations, which it made me do made no, me wonder. Did your parents show up though at the graduations? But but you just didn't show up. I mean, how how did that? Yeah. <laughs> No, no, my parents would have uh, reminded me that's not the way you treat family, but I didn't go to my high school graduation, my college graduation, my law degree graduation, uh, Indiana graduation. I was on to my next chapter, and I uh, only we went to one grown-away party, and that was 40,000 people at the 49ers Stadium at Cisco, and mainly because my team said, John, you owe it to your Cisco family to go, and it was fun. But uh, I'm always on to the next chapter, and I think that's, what makes a country great and hopefully business leaders great. 
And something we didn't talk on, Chris, you and kind of a takeaway from your for your group, is many of us think of a leader and how she or he was successful. And we talk about that more. For those of us who are parents, it we know that it's like your 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 uh, oldest son who's graduating from college this year, and congratulations. Uh, you never worry about you know, them getting a good grade or scoring a goal in soccer when they're younger. You worry about when they get knocked down, where they learn how to get up and deal with that. And that teaches you more about life. So when I talk about leadership, I actually think you're every bit as much a product of how you handled your failures, your setbacks, as your successes. And so that's kind of the messaging I hope to do in the book was sending that message. And so people go back to it and read sections again when they get knocked on their butt, and, and everybody will. Uh, and how do you, you deal with the challenges? And I've seen challenges that many people would never want to see, unfortunately. And some of them I've handled well, some of them I could have done better. But I'm more product of how I handle my challenges, my dyslexia, 2001, than I am all the successes, at least I think so. Yeah, you 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 make that clear in the book and the, you know, the, the looking back. It, it is the type of book and the, 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 the lessons in there where – I, in my view, and, and you know, we, we had a chance to discuss this very briefly, I think it's a type of, of book that not only does one return to, but one passes it forward because there is, there is something there for whatever stage one is at um, in, in business or, or, frankly, in life. And I know that you um, enjoy teaching. I, I think that it would – I do. Uh, I love it. And it's one of the ways I think that you um, humbly would view yourself, um, and and it, it, it comes across um, it, it comes across in this book. Um, to, to, so to, just to, to close out with that, looking forward and having that be such a part of who you are, um, where would you be going if you were graduating today? What, what's your what's your view of what's next? Well, your son's graduated at twenty one. Uh, and your daughter is a teenager uh, in high school. Uh, if if I were advising your daughter, I would say go to a school that teaches uh, uh, how technology and entrepreneurship can come together and what role artificial intelligence and digitization might play there. And you could write your own ticket after that. For your son, I would say keep an open mind on where you go. I know that he's a history and a business combination, and my daughter was as well. Uh, and I think you can learn a lot from history about what to do and what not to do. But I would think about being an entrepreneur, and I would go to a startup. When I talk to university students around the world, and I pull them all the time, 10 years ago I asked how many of them would go to a startup, and probably less than 20% of the people uh, in the audience would would say to a startup, didn't matter if it was Polytechnique in France or IIT in India or West Virginia University or Stanford. Uh, today I ask, and the vast majority, often as much as 80%, want to go to a startup. And I think the reason is because that's where you can use your skills and, and take risk and really empower many of the, the issues that we talked about today. So that would be my advice for, for people either headed toward college or graduating from college uh, in terms of something to think hard about. But one key takeaway, and Chris, you probably would agree with me as a father, uh, all you care is that your children are happy, healthy, and have a good education. After that, they can control their own destiny. That's for sure. 
John, thank you. Thank you for the time and, and, and for the book. A lot of, a lot of uh, important lessons and information and guidance. And, uh, you know, we get to learn from the things that, that you did well, surely, um, but also the, the areas where you look back and wish that you had done something different or, or done better and that you learned from. So uh, thank you on all fronts. Chris, it was a pleasure. You have a great day.